Welcome back to In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. This show is an open discussion of the people, ideas, and methods behind commercial real estate. I'm your host, Paul Eaton. Our guest today is Jeff Adler. Jeff is the Vice President of Yardi Matrix, the data division of Yardi Systems, which is an asset information tool set for originating, underwriting, and managing commercial real estate investments. Jeff, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast today. Pleasure. Can you tell me a little bit about your path into real estate? Uh, it's a very odd path, I'll be honest with you, because I my background was originally in strategic planning and marketing. And I, after a few years of management consulting, I worked for progressive insurance companies, Cleveland, Ohio. I set up the first uh, consumer marketing department for progressive insurance, where we developed the progressive insurance strategy. Uh, and then I transferred to Colorado to deploy that strategy in terms of both a, a full line auto insurance product. I did the initial work on what would become the snapshot uh, insurance by the mile product. So I did a bunch of those things. And so I was in, basically in the insurance business. And it so happened that it was a, for a variety of reasons needed to make a, a, a career change. I actually was recruited by an insurance company to take over an insurance company, a small insurance company in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Decided not to take that job, but the person I turned down, his college roommate was a CEO of a company called AIMCO, Apartment Investment Management Company in Denver. So I was in Colorado Springs at the time. So we got to talking and he said, well, why don't you, you know, I got this little internal insurance company. Why don't you work with me? So I did. And I worked on his insurance side of things. And in the course of doing that, there was a lot of apartments that were getting burned. And so I wanted to figure out, well, why was that? And so I ended up going into resident selection and how residents were selected and uh, behind that. And so I kind of drifted my way from insurance and risk management into property operations. And then I re-engineered the entire property operations platform for AIMCO. Then we got into the investment side, setting up the investment committee process. And so I drifted from insurance to operations to consumer marketing, and then eventually onto the investment side. And it, it was a sort of a, it wasn't planned. <laughs> it was a bit of happenstance, but it's been an interesting journey. Interesting path. Well, you wrote an interesting article in the spring 2020 edition of the Summit Journal, which is published by the Association of International Real Estate Investors, AFIRE, mm -hmm. yeah. the title being Calculating Political Risk. And before talking about the risk model itself, what led you to research and develop this model? I'll be honest with you. This is something I did not want to do. Okay. Because anytime you talk about political... And remember, this thing started out in 2018, not 2019. And... Any notion, you know, it's great to talk about the economy and demand and supply characteristics, and those are pretty all safe subjects. But when you start drifting into politics of any kind, you know, you're, you're bound to offend somebody. And I really did not want to do this, but I was led to it really by two forces, okay? The first one was, bless his heart, Peter Donovan over at CBRE sort of was like, we got rent control that's beginning to bubble up here. You know, rents have been rising a little bit, not like they are now, but you know, there's there's sort of notions of 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 rent regulation and and which we haven't seen in or rent control we haven't seen in you know 25 30 years. How do you think about that? And then also a number of my European clients, particularly those in Germany, in Europe, other parts of Europe, said we don't understand what's going on. We need to understand what's happening here because they, particularly in Germany, have had various uh, draconian uh, rent control for a long time. And, and, and in Germany, housing became more like a utility 
with utility type returns. And they had been investing in the United States because it wasn't Germany. And so like, we need, we want you to do something. And so I really didn't want to do anything, but became kind of convicted that I should do something like this, but I should do it from a perspective of treating U.S. municipalities as if they were, to a certain extent, foreign countries, right? So the way I rationalized this to my mind was, if an American was investing in anywhere outside of, you know, overseas, right, and you took an investment to your investment committee, they would, of course, require that you have a discussion on the rule of law, on sort of, you know, regulatory environment, and could you get your money in, and could you get your money out? And, and so that was sort of, you know, common sense to an American. Well, if you're going to go overseas, you should know that. But what was going on was that each city was beginning to act like its own little country to a certain extent as it relates to property rights. So if you took that perspective, right, of like, then the idea was to help investors both domestically and primarily internationally to understand the risks that they were undertaking given the political environment in each one of these municipalities so that they weren't surprised, right? You could still make an argument that an investment in San Francisco or Portland was a good investment, but you you couldn't bury your head under the sand to assume that you weren't uh, bearing some kind of risk. You just needed to expose that risk, discuss that risk, and then deal with that risk. And so in my mind, I was trying to create transparency. I wasn't trying to create, this is good, this is bad, though there's an element of that, but it was more transparency. Don't be surprised. Be aware, have an open conversation about the risk that's being taken, and then make your decision. And so that's what we attempted to do was to lay out a clear perspective of what the exposure was so that then it could be addressed in a thoughtful way. You make a very good point that we should not assume that the U.S. is a common denominator for political risk. That's right. San Francisco and Houston have very different political climates. That's right. They, they, they do. As New York does, as Boston does, as DC does, they're different in certain ways. And that's actually some of the benefits of investing in the United States. You have, you know, 200, you know, markets to decide which one fits your criteria. Now, there are, there are certain commonalities. The currency is the same. It's under a singular constitution. But we should we should also should be obvious that land use patterns in the United States are fundamentally a local decision. Okay, it's not a national decision. Let's say in Canada, you know, where it's more national, or Germany, where it's more national. The U.S. is a federal system, and one of the elements of federalism is that the use of land and the built environment is much more of a local responsibility than it is a national one. Tell me about your model of political risk. So we really kind of broke it down into a few areas. Uh, one was, I believe, affordability, just how expensive it is. And the whole goal of this was not was to try to get as many objective third-party data sets as possible. That I wasn't trying to, if I had to invent some things, I would, but I would try to start with what was available. So we went to the Harvard JCS uh, study and said, okay, just on an objective measure of affordability, how do cities rank? Okay. Now, uh, there were three then parts that were less objective, okay? One was, what is the philosophy toward affordability, okay? And this is where my bias, and I was all very open about my bias. I said, look, I believe 
that if, organ, if entities use free market principles to address problems, in the main, there will be a better outcome. So you could have an affordability problem. The question is, how are you going to address that? Do you use market mechanisms to address that? Or do you use command and control mechanisms to address that? Okay. I grew up in the New York area in the 1970s. I saw the rot that rent control, among other public policies, generated. And I didn't like it because <laughs> I saw it with my own eyes. I didn't have, it wasn't a theoretical construct. It was reality. I saw the implications of bad policy over time. So you could see that if a, if, a, if a polity decided to use a command and control mechanisms, that that was bad. But in some cases, if they used private market mechanisms, and that either could be subsidizing overtly housing or creating incentives to add supply, then that was a positive. And that would be, and we would rank, we, we scored it, you know, one, two, three, and we kind of laid out it. And then the other one was, okay, what is the philosophy toward public safety? Okay. Again, you know, you could see in the crime statistics. Again, I lived through this, so a little bit of a hard. So, if you look at the the crime data from the time that Giuliani and Bratton had innovated community policing, really a rediscovery of James Q. Wilson's a broken windows theory. Right. Okay. That when they began reinstalling community policing, crime rates fell dramatically. Areas became safer. And that created economic uh, uh, incentives, and uh, like in any security environment, it also facilitated uh, the real estate development in those areas. Okay, and you could see that. And again, you could see that in around 2015, it stopped, and that's it's called the Ferguson effect. That by implications, when the police were asked to step away from enforcing the law, that that had negative complications. I'm not saying that the way they did it was perfect, but the fact of the matter is. It had worked, and it began working less. Okay, and again, as a real estate investor, you could see that if there was a philosophy towards the maintenance of public order, or a philosophy that that diverted from the maintenance of public order, that would have an implication for real estate investment because if people don't feel safe, and this is where I'll go, I'll go back, harken back a little bit, is when I was running properties for Aimco. Okay. What had happened was, in a short-term kind of perspective, the organization had pursued financial goals, occupancy, okay? And what it had given up was resident quality standards. And what had happened was that the physical plant and the resident quality uh, standards, as measured objectively, and in financial metrics like collections and rent growth, had spiraled downward. So as people felt less safe, people who were lower income but stable chose not to live at these communities. They went elsewhere. Okay. And that the whole thing spiraled down, spiraled down, spiraled down. And if you wanted to change it, you needed to stop. Okay. Incur some pain short term, but create a safe environment for people to live their lives. And it was the owner's responsibility to pick the neighbors. Okay. And if they didn't pick neighbors well by having stable people, regardless of any financial means, this wasn't about. Incomes. It was about stability, okay, and then orderliness that communities would degrade. And I saw it in front of my eyes. <laughs> and it was kind of like James Q. Wilson's theory in practice. I mean, it was it was not at all theoretical. I saw it, okay. And so I, you know, it was easy to translate that having both lived it in New York in the '70s and lived it professionally, you know, at Aimco uh, from 2002 to 2009, I could see it. 
Okay. And then all we try to do is like, well, then let's embody this into, again, what is the public attitude toward the maintenance of, of public safety, right? And so you could, that we put that in there, that's a measure of political risk because the other part that we saw in our own consumer behavior data was there are certain populations that are incredibly sensitive to safety, okay? And small changes in safety create large changes in the movement of populations, okay? That has tended to be demographically from the data we could collect, it tended to skew female. So appropriately so, women felt uh, a greater sensitivity toward their safety and if the environment felt unsafe, there was no price discount at which you could go that would make that community attractive to them from a rental perspective, right? Because the value was so high, you couldn't discount the price. So the only thing you could do was attract people who were willing to trade off safety for a discount. And those people tended to spiral downward, okay? So again, transferring this in the environment of political risk, you could say, well, that is a political risk. If people don't feel safe, then the, the most sensitive persons to quality or to safety, they don't feel safe in a city, they will depart, okay? And it will, the city will spiral downward. You know, I don't know if that's controversial or not, but that's simply as an executable reality, that's how people behave. And so that was another part. And then the other part we had was social mobility, which was, uh, so I think we had social mobility as well as the, uh, the educational uh, quality, a uh, school choice. And I am not recall whether I put school choice in school choice or it was an infrastructure element, but, and I moved those things around as we expanded the analysis, but I put those two items in there because the serenity or the vitality of a metropolitan area is that it allows its uh, poorest members upward social mobility. And so if there's a likelihood of upward social mobility as, and again, we could find a way to measure that objectively as well as school choice which again was a measure of social mobility and the ability to get out of poorly performing public schools and an outlet for people to achieve their, their goals in life with the means that they had, that would create more harmony and cohesion within the polity and therefore would be more attractive. And the absence of those would create additional risk. It also had a probably a, a, a metric that looked at essentially uh, the control of the polity by public sector unions in a back-ended way, okay? And then those that, that, we then put that into a score, a rank, okay? Based upon each one of these components, we ranked each one of the pieces. We then created a way of weighting this, and then we created a, a composite score. And the whole point was we freely published, right? The, not the guts, right? But here are our sources, here's how we did it, here are the metrics, here's our weighting, and here's what we came out of. Not so much as to say, here's the answer, okay? But here's the framework. Here's the framework of how to think about this, how to expose it. If you disagree, and so to our clients, we actually gave us a scoring spreadsheet where they could, you know, fiddle around with stuff. But, you know, in this article, we just, we published everything and said, here's a framework to think about this. If you disagree with our weights, change the weights. If you disagree with some other partner, change it. I don't say that this is the final word on this topic, but it is a way of exposing this issue and creating a level of transparency and creating a discussion to be had around it. And then you make the decision the way you want to make the decision. I think that's a very good point because all of us who invest in different metro areas use some level of intuition to judge the political risk. We're all aware of the political risk. But what you have 
begun to do is to have some objective framework. That's right. So we can begin to compare different metro areas. And it's a beginning point. Like, you know, you're not trying to, I think, put out a proprietary model. It's let's all work together to create a, a model, a framework, and you have your weights and your elements. I have ours. Mm-hmm. And we can work and move forward in making yeah. decisions. I think because we're just using intuition. Well, using intuition, like anything which is basically under the covers, right? It's right. not exposed. It's implicit exactly. rather than explicit. And so the problem with the implicit decision making is you never quite know, you know, why you made the call and how to judge that. And understand this was in the context of, of around, we did this, I think it was in, in, in 2019-ish. And then the, we had the AFIRE article. And we I think in the, in the spring of 2018, or oh, the spring of 2019, I presented this at the CBRE multifamily conference that's done, I think, in Chicago, and now done in Nashville, which is another interesting story, why it moved. So that was, like, I'll call it phase one. Now, the response of that was so positive that then people started coming to us and say, well, you know, if I look at this analysis, it draws me towards sun-built cities, right? Again, this is 2019-ish, right? Or just as pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the discussion in the fall of 2019 was, if you look at this analysis, it, it will tend to lead you to southern and western states that tend to be more market-oriented. Okay, well, then the next follow-on question is, can these cities absorb the population which is likely to come their way? Well, then we started a six-month analysis of the infrastructure associated with all of these. You know, we ended up doing 55 cities to, across a variety of, of, of different, uh, you know, uh, sizes. So we, we then we added political risk, then fundamentals, then infrastructure risk. That became another set of uh, AFIRE articles, I think, the following year or two. And then uh, about a year ago, people said, well, isn't there an environmental exposure? that you're leaving out. Well, you know, that's kind of a good point. So we extended the analysis further. And then we had had these, all these separate analyses. And then I said, you know what? We got to bring all this stuff together because it's kind of a mess. And so about a year ago, I think, yeah, I guess it is about a year ago, we published an integrated analysis across all of these, for 55 cities, across all of these dimensions, and then did the same thing. We exposed our, our framework in PDF files and articles our clients have access to more detailed information in the waiting sheets and stuff. Though, honestly, you could reverse engineer it with, it with two hours of effort if you really, really wanted to and you didn't like us. <laughs> so, but anyway, what, what we, we've gotten a very good reception for this way of thinking, particularly for our international investors and also for large institutions who were themselves struggling with how to think about all of these exposures, right? Which is, and so how to think, so the political risk was the first window into dealing with a bit of a, you know, traditionally a third rail issue. Like you just don't want to touch it. So this gave, I think, uh, more people an ability to approach the material in an objective format or a semi-objective format, at least an open one. And then to address, if I had a bias, put it on the table and be explicit about it. How has your thinking about risk, political or otherwise, changed due to COVID? Again, this is trite, but I think it's still true. COVID accelerated a bunch of trends that were already there, but just turbocharged them. Okay. So there was already, I mean, when we were looking at cities before, we looked at intellectual capital nodes with an understanding that wealth in, in, a, in our society, okay, 
was driven off the force of ideas and where people with ideas congregated around certain types of institutions or within certain types of industries. Okay. So you could, as an example, right, in the energy industry, it was becoming more and more clear that intellectual capital was centering around Houston with a secondary node in Oklahoma City. That was happening, right? And, again, and then if you looked at other technologies, they were, they were congregating in certain cities with secondary nodes in other cities. Like okay? a theory of agglomeration where people are more productive. It made sense because people with ideas, they could get the next job much more easily and they were in the hub of ideas. It's a, a form of what's the, of Silicon Valley's uh, strength, right? Was that you had the VC and you had all the people in there and, and, and they could just circulate. And same thing in the financial industry where I grew up in, in New York. If you're in New York and there was always stuff happening in finance, right? So if it wasn't this company, it was that company. It wasn't this, this subsector, it was another subsector. So there was value in being located in those places where an industry was concentrated, okay? Not necessarily for the job you were holding, but for the next job you could get, okay? And so when we were doing our analyses that we would look at universities and, and, uh, and, and hospitals and healthcare institutions and concentrations of industries, and, and we would map that out within a metro area. So not only was it a metro area, it was certain segments of metro areas. So it wasn't all of Houston, it was West Houston. Okay, there were certain places within each metropolitan area where there were nodes of intellectual capital, and you could see that's also, you know, if you were building, you'd want to build right near the node. If you were doing redevs or value adds, you'd want to be within 15, 30 minute drive of that node, right? And so you could, and we built our investment strategy kind of um, guidance, right, around both the cities, the industries they were in, as well as the proximity to them. And so that all hung together, but there was a glue there that was that people congregated in a workplace to do their thing, okay? That was one. Okay. Now, you could see already pre-COVID that industries were moving cities, were moving, they were moving, right? So classic example was Salesforce.com stopped hiring in San Francisco, opened up a, uh, a tower in Indianapolis, and was filling it up. And they pretty much said, you know, San Francisco is really expensive. I don't need to do everything in San Francisco. There's some things I do, but other functions in my company, I could do other places. And so you could already see that there was a movement within companies and across industries moving toward places that were less expensive. And that, you know, from a, from a labor standpoint, it was almost like, and I'll use the analogy, a, a roulette labor market, right? Which is, or I would call it the casino labor market. If I was a young engineer, right? or a young financier. I would go to New York, I'd go to San Francisco, and I would basically roll the dice, right? And I'd, I'd play in there, I'd have a, have a fun time, and then I'd try to find a way to hit it, right? And if I hit it, I made so much money, who cares what the cost of living was in New York or San Francisco? Who cares? But if I didn't hit it, there'd become a point in time where I aggregated responsibilities, relationships, families, kids, and my income didn't keep up, and I couldn't play in the game anymore, and so essentially, I'd have to move somewhere else so I could have a standard of living that was decent. But and you, you basically, you played your chips as long as you could, and then you left. And so you could see there was domestic migration already happening. It was, you know, at a modest rate, but you could see the movement of some companies, particularly those who had the back office functions, were moving to Jacksonville or to Raleigh or to Nashville. You could see the things going to Austin. You, you could see things going to Dallas, to Denver. You could see that there was a movement, but it was a fairly, you know, 
modest level. It wasn't going, it wasn't super, super turbocharged. It was kind of happening at a certain rate. And you could see that there was, there was in, critical mass building in these cities, right? That they were beginning. And we did a case study of Austin, right? Uh, Pre-COVID, where you could see it was, you know, 30, 40 years, actually 1967 was the start, where there was a beginning of a, of a, of a tech ecosystem, but it was happening, but it was taking time. But you could see it when the great thing in real estate is most of these things are slow moving curveballs where you could say, oh, okay, what, what, at what point do I want to invest in a city? How much risk do I want to take? Is it a, is it an emerging? Is it sort of early established? Is it very well established? And, and that's how we basically described investment strategy is you have a portfolio of cities and a portfolio of economies, look at the development of those cities and decide to place what kind of risk return you want to make, right? All, all kind of hung together, right? All that hung together. What COVID did was just put it on steroids, like boom, right? All of a sudden, there are cities that are locked down and there are cities that aren't. There are cities that are that are very expensive. There are cities that suddenly are unsafe. And all this stuff happens in a turbocharged environment. Now, throw on top of that this notion of there had always been a amount of folks who could work remotely. And there were tools that were beginning to be developed, you know, like GoToMeeting, like Teams, sort of. Slack. Right? Quite frankly, I had never heard of Zoom before COVID. I didn't even know it existed. I knew, I knew GoToMeeting. That's what I knew. Okay. And there you could have up to six people on a video and we never even used it. Okay. We, we just did slide shares and had audio. But all of a sudden, everyone was thrown into like, boom, you can't be at work. It can't be the office. And you got to stay at home, but you still got to make a living. Right. So most office workers now said, okay, I'm now not in the office. Now, some took off right away. The younger ones said, I'm out of here, right? And they all took off to go back with mom and dad. The other folks who weren't, who had families, just went home in their same metro areas. And this began to play out. So you have on top of things two radical changes. One, an acceleration of where a business should be located, period. And then a second one of where do intellectual capital workers need to be? All of a sudden compressed in six to eight months. Like you had, 20, I don't know, 15 years worth of change in six to eight months. And we are now still living through the after effects of those two kind of like tectonic shifts. Would an example be pre-COVID, most managers thought that having workers in the same office was important to productivity and important to the enterprise. And yes. maybe over time, with the rise of remote work, we would have seen that level of importance or the, the thinking that it was important go down gradually. gradually. But due to COVID, we've had a step change, you know? And so in what would have taken 15 years, took 15 months. It happened incredibly fast. And, right. and so just as an example, right? My company, and I'll give examples, and I don't understand that as the work we've done on this subject is that to the extent to which a company moves to a lower cost city or how it approaches remote work or hybridization is a function of the industry itself, its stage of development, and the functions within that company. Right. So I want to be clear that there is no one size fits all to this. It truly is a distribution. So I'll use my company as an example, but I know that it's not the norm. Okay. Okay. So pre-COVID, our company had 40 U.S. domestic offices. 
every single person had to be in an office five days a week. We had rejected the ability of certain people who were experienced to work remotely for two reasons. One, they were uh, non-exempt. So I was told that if they're non-exempt, they have to be supervised. They have to be in an office, period. That's it. Even if they're experienced, even if they could perform their job uh, remotely, even if we didn't have an office nearby. Nope, can't do it. Now, we had limited numbers of people who had uniquely specialized skills. So, for example, I had a writer who was actually in our Romanian office, had moved to uh, Quebec. And so we were allowed to hire her and let her work from Quebec because we got an exemption. But it was extremely rare. Okay. Extremely the exception. It was the exception. It was truly yeah. an exception. And I had to go to bat for it and, and I didn't win every case. Okay. All right. Now, all of a sudden, this whole question about there being non-exempt, nobody cares. Right. So it clearly wasn't the issue at hand. It was a rationalization for whatever the reason was. So I'm sitting in my office today. I actually run three offices at, uh, at Yardi. I run the Salt Lake office, I run the Denver office, I run the Scottsdale office. I'm sitting here today in an office of 20,000 square feet that was set up for 100 people in the Denver office. We had 70, 80 people. We were, we were going to 100. I am the only person in the office today, literally. Wow. I'm the only one. There's nobody else here. Okay? So now we are now permanently hybrid. Yep. This was a company that, again, pre-COVID... And it, it so happens that we're a relatively mature tech company, okay? And yeah. most of our work is process-driven yeah. as opposed to we're not, you know, we don't require, we're not deal teams. So we don't yeah. require that level of sort of interaction. And so the work itself always lent itself to a process-driven orientation. And, and this notion that you had to be in an office was a holdover from the Industrial Revolution where you had to have people together with power and machines to make them go. So it was mostly about control, a little bit about culture. And there is some cultural degradation going on because people aren't together. Sure. But we're attempting to resolve the cultural issues through planned get-togethers. But those planned get-togethers are twice a month at best. Okay? So you can handle the cultural issue, though it's not perfect. There are costs to it. But our turnover is down significantly. Our costs are down significantly. And upon renewal, instead of renewing this 20,000 square foot space, we're going to go to half the size. And even that's probably too much. But we, again, we're being a little conservative saying, well, what if, you know, what if we want to bring in 20 people at a time and we need a space for them? Have I done, have I brought 20 people in at a time? I think once in a year. So this is part of the tectonic shift. Now, if you only talk to people who are in real estate, now, the folks I know, my friends, my buddies, okay, my friends run deal teams who were never out of the office. In May of 20, they came back and their deal teams have been working in the office every day. They've been traveling every day. Nothing changed for them. Of course, the on-site teams were always on-site. That never changed. Ask them about their accounting function. Well, the accountants, they kind of come wherever they are. So real estate is a financial service. And so... It fits in with finance as that one as an industry that leans towards in-office work, okay? But it is not the norm. It is not the average company. And so you have to look really carefully about which industries, which functions, where are they located in, and what concentrated in certain cities, 
to understand that the office sector is going through this sort of catharsis that is still playing out. And by the way, I have lots of friends who are office leasing professionals, and I love them to death. Okay, But the fact of the matter is, footprints are declining. Footprints are going away. Some companies may be growing so quickly that they'll actually increase their footprint. That is the exception, not the rule. There is a reevaluation of the purpose of a, of a meeting space, an office space, what it does, who has to be there, and whether people want or need to be there. Now, you put this together also with a labor shortage. So as we're coming out of this disruption, right, which scrambles things, then you have this massive labor shortage. So if you're a manager, how hard do you want to push this? And remember, even though the labor market now is, is loosening up a little bit, it's still really tight, right? So unless you can make a strong case, and I have a bunch of younger, you know, kind of employees, and they say, look, Jeff, if you give me a reason to come into the office, I'll come, I'll come. But you have to give me a reason, right? Because the default is I'm working from home. Not the default is I'm working from the office and I might go home. It's the other way around. Now, as a manager, the sort of impetus or the sort of the onus, sorry, of activity now is upon me as a manager to figure out why do I want my people together and what am I going to do once I get them there? Now I have to be thoughtful. I have to be, I have to, I have to be intentional about why I want these people here. Because quite frankly, my productivity on my team has never been higher. Like they get so much done. So what's the problem I'm trying to solve? Right. Right. So this is what's now it so happens if you're in multifamily as most of us are right on this podcast you know multifamily is just in in this amazingly sweet spot because the importance of housing is higher right probably the the the, the if you think about the fact that if you don't have to spend as much on a car right cars are expensive fuel is expensive net more expensive than it was a year ago but that budget if you can reallocate that budget then you have more money for housing in the first place and then if you were moving from one city to another city and you could keep your income, then you had more money for housing and to improve your lifestyle. And so all of these things have made housing more interesting, right? Now, and multifamily is interesting because it sits at this juxtaposition of a need for many people, a lifestyle for some, and then a new sub-asset type called single family built to rent who need even more space, but they're kind of locked out of the home buying process because they don't have a large enough down pay. They have the income, but they don't have the assets uh, to, to, to acquire a home. So if you're in the multifamily space, you're in this beautiful spot where there's a need. And one problem that's occurred is from a public policy standpoint, a not enough housing has been built. There's inherent restrictions to supply, which is at the end of the day, not a good thing. Okay. And then we lay this out in the political risk saying, look, it is ideal. The ideal is where housing responds to demand with about a 24 to 36 month lag. That there's enough housing, but there's also a little bit of rent growth. So you get some rent growth, you get some housing supply, and that's your Goldilocks moment. Okay. If you get if you don't get enough, if you get too much supply, you get what used to be Houston. <laughs> you get, you know, you never get rent growth. Or quite frankly, what used to be Austin, which is you always had supply and it was great to build, but you just couldn't get any rent growth in Austin or Houston. Okay. That's one extreme. The other extreme is nothing gets built, but the cost of housing goes so high that it generates a political backlash. New York, San Francisco, classic examples, right? You don't want either pole. 
right? Either poll's bad. You want something in the middle, okay? The problem is there are fewer places that are able to navigate that middle. And we as an industry, and I say the industry generally has been very, very encouraging to say, look, even if in our short-term interest, it is, it is not good to encourage supply, in our long-term interest, it absolutely is the right thing to do to encourage supply. And so we're going to say, here are all the obstacles that the public policies have put up in the way of supply that need to be changed because it's not good for this industry in the long run to not have a sufficient housing response. It's not good. And so we're very upfront. You go, go to any of the trade associations, right? Anywhere. And we'll say, look, we need more supply. And here are the obstacles to getting that supply. Yes, we'll take the rent growth if the market gives it to us. Okay. We're, we're, we're free enterprise. We're, we're, you know, we operate in a free enterprise system, but we're also telling you that's not good. So it's not like we're trying to protect or restrict supply, right? Most industries in our situation, we try to restrict supply because it's in our short run, it's better for us, right? We rent, but we're not doing that. We're not doing that as an industry. We're not doing that in any group of, of, of folks that you talk to. Okay. We're saying, no, that's a bad thing. And I think it's to our industry's credit that we're very upfront to say, look, we're thoughtful in understanding the long-term dynamic, right? That, that healthy economies that are growing, that have adequate supply for their populations, this is a good thing for the real estate industry of all kinds, right? Multifamily being one, but you could say it's self-storage or, or, or office or industrial or retail. We think, you know, for a vibrant economy, right? You don't want to be a real estate investor in a dormant, stagnant economy. Taking all that into account, looking forward over the next 10 years, where do you see the largest commercial real estate investment opportunities? And be it geography, product class, or some other criterion. Look, I, I came out of the multifamily industry. I love the multifamily industry. So I think there is a continued, I think multifamily, and multifamily, and I'm also going to put in single family built to rent as a subclass of multifamily, right? Rental housing is the right asset type, okay? And that comes in a variety of, of forms. It comes in uh, traditional multifamily. It comes into single family built to rent. It comes into manufactured housing. It comes into student housing among the largest universities, which are mostly in urban areas, by the way. You know, most of it is not rural. It's mostly urban areas. And I also love self-storage because of, of its of its sort of migratory and life change components and its low capex requirements. Those, I love those sectors, okay? And I also think that it may be trite, but you go where the people are going. Okay? A rising tide covers a lot of sins. And, and the reason I say that is, okay, if you're buying an asset or you bought a piece of land to build an asset, you always paid more than the next guy. Otherwise, you didn't get it. Okay. So, also a matter of humility. Everyone thinks they're the best, you know, purchaser ever. But, but the fact of the matter is, you did something to get that property or that land. You either had more cash, you could close more quickly, uh, you had a relationship with the seller, or you paid more. Okay. So, if you're in an economy that is draining people, right, then the tide is receding. And it's not to say you can't make money in it but it's tougher. If you're in an economy that is growing, then the, the rising tide will tend to increase the value as long as you don't, you don't have so much supply that it overwhelms, yeah. right? Yeah. 
And over time, within, with even 2% inflation, your debt's paid off in cheaper dollars. You're going to be okay. You will make money. Now, the question is how much? That will depend upon demand-supply characteristics and how much inflation there is and where you, where you fixed your debt. But the fact of the matter is you probably won't go busted. So I like places where the economies are business-friendly, where they're attracting people, and where people can, can add supply. And again, I'm looking for that kind of sweet spot where supply responds with about a two-year lag to population growth. And, and the question is, is has, has migration so overwhelmed cities like Houston and, and Austin that you, know, you can uh, you know, be there? And I will tell you, I look at the new supply pipeline in Austin, and it's big. <laughs> it's big. So Austin, as great as it is, will need to sustain a historic level of migration for all of those development deals to pan out. Now, eventually it'll get absorbed. It's gonna be a question of at what price it gets, what rents it gets absorbed at. But most cities in the US, and we do what we do this analysis, you know, looking at new supply pipelines and estimated deliveries, and with the exception of three or four markets, all the cities in the US are in balance or leaning toward a shortage of housing. And there's only three or four that I would say are ones that lean toward the potential of excess supply for a time, okay? It's not that many. All right, so I would say Miami, Salt Lake City, Austin, Phoenix, and Charlotte are really the only five that I look at that look at have the potential of too much supply over the next several years. But boy, I love, I love these markets, right? Now, I grew up in New York, and so can you make money in New York? Lots of people made money in New York for a very long time. I would say is under the current rent control regime, New York feels more like Toronto. And what happened in Toronto, because I'm very familiar with Toronto and the families in Toronto, is in Toronto, you don't invest in Toronto for rental housing. You take the cash out and you invest it in the United States because the regulatory regime doesn't really allow you to make a lot of money on operating uh, or, or, or buying for rental housing. You basically go into condos in the shadow market. That's a regulatory, you know, artifice. So New York and to me like operates a lot like Toronto and San Francisco, you know, and California, you know, it has the mechanisms where all it needs to do is ratchet down the percent of CPI uh, ceiling. You know, if you look at San Francisco itself, it started out, I think, at 5% plus CPI. And today, the older assets in San Francisco are 0.6 of CPI. Wow. Now, the infrastructure exists in California where it's like, yeah. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's five points above CPI. Uh, maybe Oregon or maybe seven points above CPI. But the infrastructure exists to just ratchet it down. It's just a question, of, you know. So it's just a question of a, a bill that passes the legislature that says instead of seven, now it's six. Instead of six, it's now five. Instead of five, now it's four, right? And it's it's already at a max of ten, and so it can't exceed ten. And it's CPI plus seven, but no, it can't be more than ten. So the infrastructure exists. And so if you talk to anybody in the industry about California, they're like, well, if I have assets, it's a great place to make money. But would I want to invest? Well, I'll build, but then I got to get out because at 15 years, it flips over. So you know, I got to find a buyer. Well, who wants to buy it? So you're getting this whole sort of thing here where California has dug itself a bigger hole. It's just a question of how quick. New York, in seven years, you will see articles that say that the housing is falling apart, 
and and what about what a bad bunch of landlords right but all i have to go to is to the public housing system today at nietzsche to see sort of you know assets decaying in front of one's eyes and so what they've written is a playbook that will guarantee the erosion of that that physical asset base and you can see it coming it's a slow rolling disaster it's not going to be a surprise now remember this happened before right again for hack them too old but i wrote this happened before which is why that you had the New York regime you did, which allowed people to invest, get a return on the investment. If people moved out, then they, they, could, re, they could rent a market because you needed a relief valve, right? If you're going to remember, rent control is all about protecting the people who are there at the expense of the people who would like to be there. Exactly right. Okay. And so it's a transference over time to benefits to certain populations. So the relief valve system that had built up in New York prior to the 2019 rent control was in response to what had happened in the 70s and 80s, where the asset base was declining and was eroding and was deteriorating. And they had to find some way to induce investment to keep the housing stock going. So now you've gone in the 2019 and you've got to one extreme and now it's going to take seven, eight years, 10 years for you know, everything to fall apart. And then you'll either you know, socialize the asset or you'll fix it. And then you'll go back to the same thing again. And so, unfortunately, there is a certain level of recurrence in human nature that gets expressed in, the, in economic policy. Those are some great insights about where we're going in some of these markets and the dangers we'll be facing. You know, where do you invest long? And then also, where do you possibly, you know, if you could, short some markets, unfortunately. Yeah. And do you have any predictions about the economy going forward? Well, I think we are, you know, we're in a tightening cycle, right? If you go back and look at COVID, we had a significant you know, economic shock akin to a natural disaster, not a traditional recession or depression. We had, we had a, a natural disaster and there was a deep shock. The Fed responded with a lot of support, but also to an extent, too much growth in the money supply. So you have a, we had a combination of too much growth in the money supply, but I think there was a 40% increase in the money supply, Plus all these disruptions in the labor market, disruptions in material markets, which tended to create sort of, you know, shortages and dislocations and, and pressures. So the Fed, anyone with a brain, and I was saying this, you know, a year ago, that the inflation wasn't temporary. It was going to be longer lasting. The Fed needed to do something. So they were a year late. So they started, right? And they will now be on a path to increase interest rates until they see a cresting of, of inflation and, and that necessitates some destruction in demand and gives time with that a little bit of destruction in demand to, for supply issues to try to resort themselves out. But it won't get all the way there because we also have a, a fundamental deglobalization and decoupling of the supply chains permanently. Okay? So this notion that we're going to get to 2% inflation isn't going to happen. Can we get to 4% inflation? Yes, I think we can do that. But 2% just is unlikely to happen. Now, th what that means is that we're going through a tightening cycle. There will be some, there, you already see there's some sort of air out, coming out of the balloons, right? In terms of the labor market and the real estate market and, and, other, and other material markets. And you can kind of see it across different commodities. And so that will continue, okay, until we get the point of a, a yield curve inversion. And then a year later, we'll have a recession. And I don't think it'll be a big recession, but it'll be enough to sort of, you know, get us to 4% inflation, but I don't see two. Okay. So 
then you'll say, well, and the biggest thing I look at is is the yield curve. And, and I look at the 10-year versus the three-month and the 10-year versus the overnight rate. The San Francisco Fed did an amazing study that indicated very clearly that the best single predictor of a recession is the 10-year versus the three-month spread, period. And it's not inverted. It's not close to inverted. It's very steep. So until you get an inversion, right, and you still have a year. So if you look at where we are today, I think we get an inversion sometime in 2023-ish, second, third quarter, 2023. And so I think we get a, a recession in 2024. What, could I be wrong? I look at the inversion. Look at the yield curve. Pretty simple. It's been dead right every single time, even when you don't want it to be. And when it does invert, everyone will say this time is different because it never feels like it's a problem when the inversion actually happens. It never feels that way. Remember, monetary policy always works with a year lag. So whatever the Fed is doing doesn't really hit the economy for another year. So that's where we're at. So that's how we're orienting our, our advice to investors is focus on you know, getting yourself prepared for a recession. Enjoy the rent increases while they last. Understand your debt strategy in the light of of the timing of this, understanding your development delivery schedule in this light. Be mindful of what's coming. We're in a tightening cycle. Duh, we've been in tightening cycles before. This isn't anything new, okay? It's just we're in this one now. And it had a little bit of a funky, odd cause. Do you have any books that you'd recommend? Well, there's there's a bunch that I love uh, on various topics. And so one thing I would encourage you to do is Ray Dalio, the CEO of Bridgewater, yep. chairman of Bridgewater, his last two books about navigating big debt crises and navigating a new world order is probably the best way to understand the macro issues related to the decline and fall of empires, okay, and the maintenance of empires. And the U.S. is a form of a empire, but it is through a democratic means as opposed to sort of, you know, uh, imposition of, of military control over jurisdictions. Along the same line, Peer Zion, Z-E-I-H-A-N, just came out with an interesting book, which I'm just getting into now, which is about globalization and the decline of the U.S. consensus to maintain globalization and the U.S. naval might that sustains free trade. So two great books in that area. If you're talking about personal leadership and sort of personal management, Jocko Wilnick has a great seven-minute PragerU video on the keys to personal accountability. Simon Sinek has a great 45-minute video on Leaders Eat Last, one of his best books about the essence of group psychology, group leadership, management. And then two sort of like throwbacks is uh, Hayek's The Road to Serfdom and, of course, Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom. So those are you know books that are on my... If, um, if you were looking at my back shelf and you would see the books that I tend to read, boy, those are them. I love those things. I try to understand the world around me as best as I possibly can. And uh, I found those those folks incredibly insightful. Anyway, I've enjoyed uh, the time, Paul. I hope it was helpful. Jeff, thanks for coming on the podcast today. I will put a link to the political risk article as well as a link to all the books you recommended. You can find Jeff's contact information in the show notes. You will also find the link to his 2020 article, Calculating Political Risk, and to the books and videos he recommended. Thank you for listening to this episode of In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. You can reach us at info at in